Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors, an essential industries podcast in which I continue a conversation begun with children's television icon, Fred Rogers, in my PBS documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me. Each week, I talk with friends and neighbors from around the world about how they're endeavoring towards depth and simplicity despite an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, rock journalist, Brian Ives. If I know Brian, he's smarting from the limiting description of rock journalist. This is a guy who listens to entire bodies of work, say, Miles Davis, studio albums, live albums, compilations, outtakes, b-sides, from At Last to Doobop. This is a guy who, along with his rock photographer wife Maria, is out at shows nearly every night. Brian is an epic music fan, so rock journalist doesn't quite cover it. Brian currently runs digital content operation for Beasley Radio's 40-plus stations and hosts a new podcast called How You Play Your Hand about musicians and resilience. Brian has spent a career building report, extracting insight, and sharing scoops on predominantly rock acts, Santana, The Who, CSN, and Y. You name them, he's interviewed them, or reviewed their show, or written their liner notes. For more than 30 years, Brian has kept the music news coming on Sirius Radio, Loudwire, CBS, VH1, and MTV, where I met him more than 20 years ago. We only worked together for a few months, as you'll hear, but we've been friends for two decades because music. Above all, Brian's a terrific friend, concert-going partner, and free swag sharer. No one's given me more Neil Diamond ephemera than Brian. Moreover, Brian's been one of very few people, friends, colleagues, or otherwise, with whom I can share open and cynicism-free discussion on music and all things. And it's so funny, I mean, because they weren't that big a deal, but at that point in our lives, like a band that came from another town to play with us and let us yeah. open was like, you know, yeah. I really want to talk with you because first you have an amazing career from my vantage point <laughs> in terms Thanks. of the experiences that you've had. I think you've been resilient and nimble and, and above all positive, your authenticity and your heart on your sleeve. You never judged me, bro. Right. You know, well, I mean, we I were the dudes who didn't judge each other. And there were yeah. so many critics and judges around that place. That was always a place that we met. But like when you'd be like, oh, I got the new Neil Diamond box set. And you knew that I was not going to be embarrassed. Right. I, and, and furthermore, I was going to be legitimately grateful. You know, yeah. and furthermore, you didn't judge me for liking it. No. Speaking of origin stories, watch the Woodstock 99 documentary. Me too. Yeah. Weekend. And so I started Tuesday after the Sunday night of like fires and stuff. Oh. And so that means we've known each other for almost exactly 20 years. Wow. I was dating Maria. We drove up to Woodstock together and we snuck into the barracks and we slept in a bunk bed in like the barracks or whatever. Nice, and, nice. Um, That's awesome. I love that. I was determined not to leave before the Red Hot Chili Peppers because when I went in 94, I was with a girl who I was friends with and she wanted to leave before the Chili Peppers. And I'm like, I'm not doing that again. So, <laughs> so we stayed for that. But then somebody drove a car onto the field in front of us and people actually turned it upside down and were throwing like bottles that were on fire at it. And I'm like, we could definitely see them again. The Chili Peppers, that is. Good for you. Like, let's, you know, like, let's go. And of course, there was like a lot of traffic because everyone's trying to leave. And I remember pulling over somewhere and leaving Michael Alex a voicemail. And I was like, 
this is a terrible first impression, but maybe he's here because I saw the MTV, you know, the MTV yeah, stuff. He was. I didn't really realize until talking to you guys afterwards and I saw it on the dock, how badly MTV was being treated by the audience. But I'm sure he probably, if he was there, wanted Monday off as well. But I yeah. said, man, I'm not getting home till really late. I, I hope it's okay if I start on Tuesday instead. Oh and my I, gosh, I, thought I he might have. I thought he might've been mad at me because like I waited outside his office for a pretty long time. And then he took me into, I remember where I sat. I remember the room mm-hmm. and I was like in the corner and like, I didn't even have a login. So like, he just sort of like put me on the computer <laughs> and like I was sitting in the corner and I was hearing your voice oh. and hearing David Basham's voice and Robert Mancini's voice and Kim Stitzel and Ken. And I remember thinking like hearing your voice, I'm like, I'm going to be friends with that guy. Uh, like there's just like an empathy or something in your voice oh, that thanks. I was just like, I'm going to be friends with that guy for sure. Look and at so, us now, dude. I love that. We're still friends 20 years later. So, which Brian. is really cool. And so to me, it's like you have to stay positive. I mean, I think we both know people who work in real estate now, and I don't condemn that at all. I know I couldn't do it at all. Yeah, Um, likewise. I'm I'm glad I haven't had to make that choice. But part of it is like you have to kind of bounce into an interview, you know, and you can't have any sense of I've been screwed over. So like this job is owed to me or anything like that. Like you just have to be like, you know, these people should want to work with me after meeting me. And I also know, you know, I'm a good writer. I'm not the best. Like I may not be the best at anything, but I'm a good team player. And I know that like, for the most part, I can get people to like me, not by trying to like pander, but by finding where you connect. Yeah. You know, that's what, that's my experience with you because you have breadth and because you're open which again is why we're, I mean, I'm, listen, I'm friends with people who aren't right. Like, but yeah, generally, yeah, but generally speaking, my preference is for people who'll be like, well, yeah. the idea that like some people would be like, well, that's not how you do it. Or that's no good. That never worked for me. And it's one of the reasons I was so attracted to Fred Rogers is he struck me as so fully appreciative of anyone's efforts. If they, like demonstrated any energy or moxie or dynamism at all. And for me, I feel like waking up is hard enough in some ways, you know what I mean? Not really waking up, but like just the day to day thrash can be so challenging Yeah, and you got a choice, right? Like, am I going to let it get me down and be a son of a bitch to people? Or am I going to do my best to like, I don't know, man, I just, I mean, this is why we'll be friends forever. And because that's just not who you are, but are you Jersey born and raised? Like, right. So, so give me a little, no, no, no. So give me the born and raised part. I was born in um, the Bronx. Um, I was, we used to live in an apartment in the Bronx on Anthony Avenue in the Bronx. And then we moved to Co-op City, which a lot of people might be more familiar with. And we lived there till uh, I was seven. And then we moved here to Fairlawn and I've pretty much been here. I mean, I moved away to go to college in Long Island, not really too far of a trek. You could drive there in less than an hour. Um, But, you know, that's what I did. Moved back home after college. Me and Maria moved out together in Ridgewood, which I could ride my bike to. Um, we got it's like a, a Springsteen home. song, dude. Me and Maria. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we got an, another apartment in Fairlawn, and then we moved into our house, which is in Fairlawn. And her mom lives in Fairlawn. And yeah, I've definitely been very Fairlawn-based my entire, almost my entire life. My dad owns an architect firm, and he has been in New, in Fairlawn for decades. I mean, he's been an architect all his life. He worked for an architect or an engineering firm. He was the resident architect. Uh And, you know, they had a bad year. 
made cuts. He lost his job. And like, that was really scary to me because my mom was a teacher. So even though she was unemployed at one point because she left to have me and my brother, once she got another teaching job again, she was never unemployed until she retired. But watching my dad be unemployed was like, holy cow. And he just started his own architecture firm out of our basement. Um, And we had like no money. Like I remember going to the bank and he withdrew like a $10 bill for the weekend or something like that. And like, that was like pretty scary. And, you know, at one point I kind of wanted to run my own business like my dad does, but I just also knew you either have to have an undeniable skill or a really great idea. And, you know, Mm. I just don't, you know, and I like, I'm okay with that. And I always knew that, you know, I wanted to have like a fairly solid job where I could work normal hours, like Monday ish to Friday ish, nine ish to six ish or whatever, you know, and that got even more solid in my mind. Once I started dating Maria, who's a teacher as well, even when I was working for you guys at MTV, my job, you'll recall, I had to be there at 7 a.m. Yeah, so I recall. I, yeah, I mean, I was Because <laughs> I up. had that shift once, too. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. You, you and Basham made it possible for me and Mancini not to. After I left MTV.com uh, to go to MTV2, my hours were more normal. Yeah. And I was, you know, coming home from the city, going to the gym, coming home and making dinner at, like, nine. Yeah. And she expressed that she didn't like that because she's like, I feel like I don't live with you. Totally. And that was like a really big, mature, important decision to make. Like I always sort of prided myself in like, yeah, I could have a girlfriend, but I'm never going to be like tied down or whatever. And then I realized, well, like if this is, this won't work unless I make some compromises yes. in my own behavior. And so I started waking up at the same time I did at MTV.com and I would go to the gym in the morning at like 5 a.m. or whatever. Good for and, you, yeah. You know, and I mean, obviously it's worked. We just celebrated our 19th yes. anniversary. Um, but we've been together for 26 years. I got another offer from MTV too. Gotcha, And right, the reason yeah. why I remember is because like I started there right before the end of the year. And this is like really obscure knowledge for MTV geeks. But like starting with the year 2000 at MTV2, we ostensibly played every single music video in alphabetical order. And my job there was um, to write VJ scripts for Jancy Dunn, who is like one of my favorite writers at Rolling Stone. I just adored her writing. And the fact that I was writing for her was like, I'm definitely getting fired soon. Like, what does she need that for? <laughs> right, you know? totally. And then I got to meet her and I was like, oh my God. Like, not even in like a crush way. I just... You know, the, the cover that too, story. Though. I mean, let's be me at 26, 25. Heck yeah. Well, I mean, but I was, I was with, talented, with Maria. like out. Well, I wasn't. So I'll just, I'll put that on me then. How about that? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I mean, she wrote that cover story of, for Rolling Stone with, um, when Melissa Etheridge revealed that David Crosby, Crosby was, there, yeah. you know, and so like, that was just such an incredible piece. But like she, most of the stuff she wrote was even that piece was so much fun, but she wrote this really fun profile of the breeder. Like I just loved her writing. And then like, I got to meet her and she wasn't stuck up. Like you sort of have an impression in your mind that like all those people must be like indie rock snobs. And she, as it turns out, is from the New Jersey suburbs also. Yeah. And was like, you know, sort of came from more of a background like I did than what I would perceive most of the Rolling Stone people would be. And it was it was great. But that's how I know I wasn't there for a long time because yeah. I was there by December and only started with you guys in 
August, late August. So it's probably three three and a half months or something, but it was an impressionable time in my life. And, you know, I mean, I remember being like, wow, like that's Kurt Loder and that's Chris Connolly and, you know, all these people and stuff. And like, we've been friends this entire time. And that's also where I met like Michelle Roberts and Roger Coletti, who would later hire me for VH1 radio. And I'm still friends with those guys after all these years as well. So you can't blame me for something. I fell in love with at eight. Not you, but one can't like, why would you like, am I supposed to like disavow the fact that it was like the do run run by Sean Cassidy, a cover obviously was like one of the first amazing pop songs I heard. I had no fucking context, but it was like Sean Cassidy tenor of all tenors in like 90 layers, full seventies production. What did I know? I loved watching people react to songs for the first time Mm. that are like not new. Like there's these two guys called lost in Vegas and they're two black guys and they would listen to like a metal song that they didn't know the band. They didn't know the song. They didn't know anything about it. They just are reacting to if they like it or not, you know, and they'll do reactions to hip hop stuff and like pop stuff where like they know Britney Spears or they know Drake or whatever, but like for a rock or a metal or a country thing, they're hearing it for the first time. And I found myself being really jealous of that because it's like they're hearing like Rush Spirit of the Radio for the first time. Yeah. Or even like Chris Stapleton. Like they ended ultimately have done like eight different Chris Stapleton songs because now they're fans too. Yeah. Yeah. So the first time it comes out, now they do have the context. They just want to hear it. Yeah. I was watching one woman react to Pearl Jam's Black from MTV Unplugged. Oh, wow. And she cried. Yeah, sure. At the end of it. Like, she just couldn't believe, like, and how did I not know about this music? It's 30 years old. Um, But I remember, I won't mention names, but, like, you were listening to (laughs) James Taylor, and somebody came into the office and said, it's inappropriate for you to listen to such music. And, um, And you were like, but I like it. And this person was like, well, this is MTV. Like, we don't listen to that here. And around the same time, this person mentioned the Eurythmics. Yeah. And I think the Eurythmics had like a comeback, like reunion, a new album at that time. And I mentioned that I had just heard them on WCBS FM, which for those of you who aren't from New York, yeah. that's like the oldies station. Yeah. Now they call it classic hits, but it's not for new current bands. And so I mentioned, oh, I heard them on CBS FM. And like this person found that, first of all, he didn't believe me Yeah. and just found the idea like sort of incomprehensible. But it's like everything that everybody likes at some point, no matter how hip it may have been in its time, isn't hip anymore. Yeah. But like, do you really want to be chasing trends yeah. and be like that person who's like whatever Pitchfork likes, I will say that I like to yeah. for the sake of seeming young. Like to me, it's like. I feel like I know the difference between good and bad music. I mean, I could maybe be a snob sometimes, but I'm never disavowing. Like I bought tickets for Genesis. They cost uh, over yes. $100 each. Oh my gosh. And I'm the fact that I'm going, like yeah. I want to see it. Yeah. I saw Phil Collins before the pandemic, you know, even not being able to play drums, yeah. not really being able to walk, yeah. but his band is the band that he'd always had. They were incredible. His son is the drummer. Yeah. He could still sing and he still has got charisma to be able to like, get your attention, even cheer bound, you know? And so I'm not disavowing any of that stuff. I'm not, you know, by the time I knew that rush and yes, weren't cool to like, it was too late. (laughs) I mean, I didn't know. Totally. I mean, loyalty is a big part of my life. You don't have to be loyal to a band, but like, I didn't see any reason not to love them. Even as I was like, 
you know, loving R.E.M. and U2 and then because of those bands listening to the Velvet Underground yeah, and listening likewise. to the Stooges yeah, yeah, and listening yeah. to Patti Smith and all these things that are supposed to be so much cooler. Like I didn't see it in that kind of hierarchy. Yeah. It was all just like, this is stuff that I like. Yeah. Did that ever feel like it was an issue with like, as you've been at numerous digital music publications, uh, you've always been a person who contextualizes music for a large audience. Well, your question was about like liking yeah. mainstream stuff. But for me, it's like, I mean, I don't mean to pick on Pitchfork and I have some friends there, but like I never worked at a place like that. Like I worked in real quick succession. I worked at a heavy metal marketing company doing their biweekly magazine, but it was a marketing company. Yeah. So it's like you really there's no room for snobbery. Next job after that was a ra- SW Radio Networks where I worked for John Lascauso. Um, ah, of course. And it was writing classic rock stories for classic rock radio stations. Like, it is not your place to make fun of Sticks and Ario Speedwagon. Yeah. That is what they play. Yeah. You know, and like, I, at that time, I was still very much under, I don't want to say the spell. I loved everything. I still love everything I loved then, but I was reading Ray Gun all the time and Alt Press all the time and yeah. Spin all the time. And so I was like, Sticks. Ugh, you yeah, know? totally. And then it's like, you do some research and you realize how many millions of records they sold. Yeah. How many, how popular they still are, even if they're not as popular as they were. And by the way, they're really nice to you. Yeah. yeah. So are you really going to like walk out of there and like snicker like a jerk? Yeah. And so like that definitely straightened me up a bit. From there, I went to MTV where it's a little, you know, it was like a little, there was some room to be a snob there. You know, <laughs> right. But I mean, I learned so much. I mean, I was thinking about it the other day, like. I remember you telling me we can't write about R.E.M. anymore and you were kind of bummed about mm-hmm. it. And I was like, why? I'm like, they're still the greatest. And you're like, yeah, but no one's reading yeah. these articles. And I was like, how do you know? Like, it, I didn't come from a digital background. Yeah. So I just presumed that if a television channel was popular, the website was automatically equally as popular. Yeah. And yeah. that would be what directed, you know, that would be what determined your ad sales. Like, I just, I guess I didn't think about it much, but I just thought that. It was also early ad- days, dude. It was really early yeah. days. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I guess, presume that if you bought a commercial on MTV, you MTV.com was part of it. And like, I just really didn't know you could see how many people are reading every single thing and where they're coming from and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Like, that was my first experience with analytics. Oh, that's um, funny. That was a real bummer of a moment for yeah, me. Yeah, for both life. of us, me too. I was not an analytics guy at Facebook because guess what? The analytics guys at Facebook have PhDs. You know what I mean? Like they're at MIT. But it, but yeah. at Viacom, it just became so clear to me that there was a relationship between what we were making and how it was being consumed and whether or not yeah. we had a future. <laughs> That's all. This department, when, when I finally got promoted, my first thing was, well, we clearly need to run this like a business because this is not a not-for-profit at Viacom. Like Viacom's not doing this because yeah. they like us. And I still have conversations every day I'm coaching and consulting. So I just had a conversation about like, well, how do we measure impact? Right. And that's what anybody ever wants to know. I never lost a job. I was at VH1 for quite a long time. Yeah. Even while I was there, all my colleagues lost their jobs and they kept just me. And like, I was shocked. Why do you think Um, that is? I have a theory, but why do you think that is? Part of it was they made me an offer when I was at VH1 radio and he's like, anybody would leave radio for TV. And I was like, (sighs) I wouldn't. And so I, you know, it's sort of like knowing your worth, not, you know, not being too thirsty and, you know, like not just hooking up with somebody just because they want to hook up with you, you know, like, you know, and so they came back to me a few months later with more money and staff 
I think the talent department really liked me because they knew that I knew what I was doing. Yeah. Most of the other guys were like radio people who might have liked music, but weren't like, you know, couldn't really roll with a Moby if he starts dropping like obscure references. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes they're too obscure for me, too. Yeah. But like I could roll with this more than any of my colleagues could. Of course, I would have known nothing. I probably would have gotten fired within weeks if it wasn't for them all being kind enough to explain to me what to do in an edit room, because I'd never been in one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's my job now to instruct an editor who's been doing this as his career yeah. to make a package when I literally have no idea the terminology, anything like that. Yeah. I definitely felt a little bit, you know, like imposter syndrome. Like, why am I even here? How did you manage through those moments when you were like, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here, but I know I need to create a connection with this human because we have to get something done. Yeah, I mean, it's just like you have to have humility. A thing that a lot of people who don't know what they're doing will say, can we (laughs) fix this? And it's like, there's no we. You're not doing a thing. That that guy or woman is doing the thing. So, like, stop. Don't say that. Yeah. And like have the humility in there to just be like, especially in the control room. We did a lot of stuff live to tape. Yeah. And it's like, so that's not even being just with a camera guy and an audio person. It's not just being in an edit with one editor. Everybody's looking to you for the direction. And I've never done that. Like I imagine people go to school for it and do it a bunch of times. Yes, they do. do it on television. (laughs) That's going to be seen by people. (laughs) You know, so like I just basically said like, look, I have never done any of this before. I'm going to learn it as fast as I can. And if people yelled at me, I didn't take it personally. And I just was like, I would probably yell at me too. You know, (laughs) I I could understand why they would be upset about it. And it was also a good learning moment for me because I realized that the people who hired me for that job didn't have to see the consequences of hiring somebody who had literally no business being there. Like you have to be able to look at everybody who's involved in the food chain of what you're doing and maybe you don't know what you don't know. Brian, from my vantage point anyway, I wouldn't sell you yourself short. It's just decent to have a relationship with the people on your team. But also people want to work with guys like you and gals like you because you're like, I don't know. The water's deep here, but I, I, pro- I think I can tread and, and pretty yeah. soon I'll figure out the stroke and we'll get going here. But I love that your answer was humility. There's something about like, listen, I pulled on my right leg first and my left leg second and I yeah. tripped over my socks or whatever. And that for some reason that kind of like, oh no, I'm human first yeah. is hard for people. I don't know. I just have always felt it's better to just be honest and be like, look, I get it. I wouldn't like me being here either if I was you, but I'm here. So yeah. like, let's just let's do, do our best. And, you know, I mean, I had to, I, that excuse only works for a few weeks also. Like at some point, yeah. either you can do it or you can't, yep. you know, like yep. even as patient as I am, like I would be like, we need somebody who actually knows how to do this um, to get our jobs done. I remember one time I went to meet Moby at Teeny. He was just sort of like there working with the people who worked there. It was the middle of the day, so it wasn't like it would be crowded. Yeah. And so I came with my camera guy and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm here early. Who am I supposed to talk to? And he's like, me. Yeah. You're here to interview me. And I was like, I know. But like, who's your publicist? He's like, no, you, I mean, we could just start. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, well, our talent person isn't here. You know, I mean, because that's just the way these things are done. Totally. And it was like, no, why don't we just talk? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay. Yeah. You know, and just because like in my earlier jobs, I had booked my own interviews. Yeah. And when I got to MTV, I tried that once. 
but I knew they trusted me with like really big artists. I could talk indefinitely to like most of these guys, even somebody like, like Ringo Starr hates doing interviews and you could set your clock to it's 15 minutes. Like he knows what 15 minutes feels like rolling, <laughs> right. looking at his watch. And he's like, okay, are we done? You know, but then afterwards he'll keep talking to you for like a really long time. Huh. And so I was able to always do that and like not be weird, but like know enough that if they dropped like a Dylan reference or, right, right. you know, a Joni Mitchell reference or a Stevie Wonder reference that I would know what they're talking about. And so I don't know, I guess that might be why they, they kept me. And that, I mean, those, I, I don't want to say those are the greatest days of my life because, you know, like today is the greatest day, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever. As far as like interviews and stuff go, I mean, that I, was the heyday of major, major artists. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was like Tom Petty and Joe Strummer of yeah. The Clash and Robert Holy Plant and yeah. Usher and Nora Jones the day her second album came out yeah. and like Alicia Keys and Pink and Destiny's Child, yeah. all three of them yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, Another thing they did was um, we would have our own green room as you guys did at the Grammys. And the first year we shared our room with the Grammys, meaning like- Oh my I was gosh, yeah, yeah. Was like it was going for their website. So like we didn't care about like, for instance- the Tibetan monks who were up for best international, whatever, right, right. or like Howard Shore who scored the Lord of the Rings movie, but was up for best film score, but the Grammys did. Yeah. And so it was like, they're like, well, if you don't want to do that stuff, we'll send in our guy. And I'm like, that will probably mean that I won't get to do that's the big right. ones. That's so right. That's right. I'm doing it. So it's like all day. Cause you know, there's a pre-telecast. Yeah, totally. Time. Yeah. It's like, you can't prepare. Yeah. You can't prepare yeah. for five nominees in each category. And back then there was over a hundred categories. It's just like, do your best. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really care as much about like the guy who designed Ani DeFranco's album and got best albums. <laughs> no, like I enjoyed the album, but it's, it's just like, I do not want to cede that to anybody because then when Stevie Wonder comes in here, it'll be like, Oh, I've got this one, you know, and that's how I interviewed Stevie Wonder. And that's how I interviewed you too, Ooh, all four of them yeah, together. Wow. And you know, like Beyonce by herself. So which artists are still on the like to do list? Cause it's pretty comprehensive, buddy, but you never got to yeah. kneel. No, there is four people that I felt like if I didn't interview, it would be okay. Neil, I wasn't sure I wanted to do, Aretha Franklin, uh-huh. Prince, and Bob Dylan. Because all of those, I just felt like, I don't know if it's going to go well. Yeah. I, not, rather not, I don't rather not solely my relationship to their art. Yeah, and it would never make me like them less, but it would make me feel bad that they thought that I was like bothering them or yeah. something. Which yeah. is probably like... Like Anthony D. Curtis and Alan Light don't think that stuff. Yeah. Or Jansen Dunn doesn't or think. David like, Frick, yeah. Yeah, the people who I look up to. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I'll always have a little bit of imposter syndrome. But of the ones that I would want to interview, like I never I interviewed Ringo, but never Paul. Not too late. No, it's not too late. I mean, the thing about him is that he runs every interview. I've been trying to prepare some questions in my mind that he will have been unlikely to have gotten because he's not on autopilot in a disinterested way. Right. He's on autopilot like he loves to just be the charismatic guy. And like everybody's like, oh, Paul. And I would be like that, too. But I want to actually get something out of it. Yeah, for sure. You know, I would want to make it worth it to a Paul fan to click on mine. Yep. Yep. Be like, I didn't hear that. So that would be one. Springsteen is, of course, one. I've interviewed every E Street band. Yeah, that member. seems bananas. We got to work on that. I don't know what I yeah. don't know what bearing I have, but I'll send a letter on your behalf. 
He does very little, and with him, I feel, I mean, I feel like there's more likelihood that I'll bump into him on the boardwalk. Totally, yeah, yeah. And then I would probably talk to him about music, but not his, because that would be weird. But if you could bring up the clash with him, it would probably be more fun of a conversation for him. But, you know, like, I feel like I would do a good interview with him that wouldn't just be like, oh, Bruce, you're the greatest, you know, or something like that. You know, I would definitely ask him about the Super Bowl commercial, which is probably what he does not want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Stephen Van Zandt says, like, there's nothing more patriotic than questioning your country. And to me, as somebody who admires him and is such a big fan, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with calling him to task for something that he did. You know, I'm not not going to go buy his next record. I'm not going to not go see him in concert. He's still a major part of my life, but I would love to know the thinking behind that yeah. thing. And like, yeah. you know, so he's definitely one. Um, Eddie Vedder is yeah. I'm still a member of the Pearl Jam 10 club. My wife was, we, we merged our membership. Ah. When we first met. So there's definitely a few, I mean, I've interviewed everyone from Led Zeppelin. I've interviewed not Bill Berry, but the other three from REM. Yeah. Uh, he was gone by that time. Yeah. I interviewed all four guys from U2 together twice. I've interviewed Al Green, like even of the older guys, like I've interviewed Willie Nelson. Yeah. What's a moment of real connection that you remember? And can you reconstruct why it happened? A moment where you were like, all right, we're, we're connecting as humans, which is always, I think the goal, right? Yeah. But there's an artifice that's in the way. That could end the minute the camera goes off. Yeah. You know, like whether or not they want to admit it, they are performing. Yeah. Even if they don't have a guitar in their hands or whatever, you know, like what they're saying is the message that they want to put out there. At that time, yeah. Some people just sort of forget about it if if you're good at interviewing. I mean, Slash has said to me, it didn't even feel like an interview. It was a conversation. <laughs> right, totally. Maybe Robert Plant, and here's why. It was his first album. It's called Dreamland. It was his first album after the Page Plant thing. He always didn't want to only talk about Led Zeppelin. And then he goes back with Jimmy Page and sort of relives Zeppelin sort of. And so now he's done with that for the second time. And so we got to Zeppelin at some point, but like he had been doing shows the summer before where he's playing all covers. And he asked me if I'd been uh, at the shows. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I went to the show at Roseland. And I asked him about some of the songs he covered that right. wasn't on his current album. So like I could see something click in his mind. Yep. And he was like, all right, he actually knows what I'm talking about. Yep. And he's not trying to cut to the chase. And so afterwards... He hung out for a long time and um, we were just talking and he was saying to me that like he just doesn't want to have to appeal to like the Led Zeppelin fan base for the rest of his life. Yeah. Even during the interview when I asked him like why the thing with Jimmy Page ended, he goes, I ain't got that much time left. I mean, yeah. mind you, this was almost 20 years ago. Yeah. But, like that's how he felt even then. Yeah. Um, and he said, I want to do what I want to do. Yeah. And so he was saying afterwards, he said, you know, like I... I I need to get into other places where I don't have to act like I'm the Led Zeppelin guy. Yeah. And I said, you know, um, I said, you should do like a record with Emmylou Harris or something. Uh huh. You know, like if you're in New York for a long time, you should listen to WFUV. Yeah. It's a really good radio station. And, you know, I don't know if you would, you would probably know a lot of the artists, but like maybe that's the scene where you can get to. Yeah. And of course, you know, you've interviewed Bill Flanagan for this very show. Bill Flanagan is widely credited and rightfully so. He introduced Robert Plant to Alison Krauss and like said, you guys should do a duet at this thing. But I like to think that maybe somewhere right. I put something in his the mind. Early that, like, seeds. I think 
Yeah, and the uh, epilogue of that story is I get back to my office and Universal calls me and they're like, well, what are you doing tomorrow? And they said, well, Robert really, you know, we're, we're shooting an EPK with him tomorrow. And Robert asked if you and your crew would be available to oh come back. Oh, my gosh. And the guy said, and this is the part that might be weird, he said, well, we'd already hired Kurt Loder for it. <laughs> Let's start some beef. <laughs> I mean, Don't, Kurt Loder's yeah, career speaks yeah. for itself. Like, I am not anything close to what he has accomplished. You know, I didn't ask why, but sure. he said, Robert thinks that you would be really good for this if, yeah. if you're willing to yeah. do that. And so I was like, Pfft. and so like, I really felt like, wow, you know, like I did that. Like, yeah. he, you know, I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't remember me if I bumped into him today because yeah. that was so long ago, but I'll never forget it. And I felt like, yeah, I connected with the guy clearly. How have you cultivated that? What's the source of what I'll characterize as minimally humility, kindness. Yeah. And, and again, back to this thing, this openness, this like, listen, the world's big and full of different things. And I'm just going to go ahead and give it a listen first. You know, Yeah, I have no gripes with my upbringing at all. Yeah. Like, my parents are great. I still have a great relationship with them. I go home for dinner every Sunday night, but I don't know. I mean, especially at VH1 and you probably had MTV. It's like, you realize like, there's they're they're people they might have been the posters on your wall and you right. might have spent yeah. hundreds of dollars on their cds and records over the years and they definitely are where they are because they wanted to be yep. but at some point they also you know they don't want everyone geeking out around them and yeah. if you could hold that in check and just have a conversation it helps and yeah. i actually when i was at sw radio networks i did most of my own interviews but we also worked with this guy gary graff he's been writing for billboard for decades I remember hearing him like just talking to whoever, like, what's the weather like there? Or how's your kid? Or, you know, yeah. stuff like that. He was just talking to them like they were his friend, which was sort of like a revelation for me. Whether in conversation with Paul McCartney, Jimmy Page, or, well, me, Brian is humble, patient, and enthusiastic. He probes the depths and the edges. He respects the process, the essential invisible and he celebrates it in all its forms. Top 40, heavy metal, blockbusters, and indies alike. Brian's not about the numbers, he's about the moment. As Fred Rogers reminds us, the most important thing is that we're able to be one-to-one, -one, you and I with each other at the moment. If we can be present to the moment with the person that we happen to be with, that's what's important. Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download the podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com. And if you're moved or inspired by what you're hearing here, please share it with your friends and neighbors. Until next week, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Friends.